Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Backstage Podcast. It's very difficult to forget the day a very talented young man met with my colleagues and I with a request to provide any and all help to win his nomination as a Liberal Party of Canada candidate for the 2015 general election for the riding of Ahuntsic in Montreal. I remember how much Anthony DiCarlo impressed us and demonstrated to us his passion for politics and his exceptional knowledge of that area he wished to represent, which is why we were so torn when we told him that we couldn't help or get involved strictly because of how delicate politically it is to throw support behind an aspiring election candidate. Unfortunately, despite the incredible local support he had worked so hard to get, he stepped aside to allow for someone else to be nominated. However, that selfless action helped to open another door which propelled him to the successful career he now has. On this episode, we talk about all that political journey, his contribution as a member of the Canadian Armed Forces, as well as the crucial work he now does at the Dallaire Institute. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Let's go, dude. First of all, it's it's good to see you, honestly, because it's been fucking forever, uh, and uh, you know I've been following. First of all, look, uh, how's the family to begin with? Because uh, I know that you had uh, you had a kid recently. Yeah, well, uh, I got number two came uh, very shortly after number one. Oh, so man, I know, man. Congrats. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. And uh, you know, fifteen months apart, they're pretty much almost the same height. Uh, yeah, man, that's tough. Yeah. Months apart. Yeah, it was. It was. Um, it was definitely a a one-two punch. I, you know, in hindsight, um, having them close together, they're two boys, right? So oh, you yeah. know, they grew up together. Yeah, people yeah. think they're twins. You know, uh, they're you know they're doing awesome. Uh, of course, you know, pacing them out would also have been a, of a, you know, a great, a great benefit, but uh, for you, for you, <laughs> for me, Isabel, the, you know, but the, in all honesty, uh, they're healthy. We're lucky. We can't complain within this COVID pandemic. They're both healthy. Our extent, our extended families are, are healthy, you know, and, and, and so uh, I'm happy to say that. Yeah. Good man. Good. Uh, I was, I was thinking yesterday, I'm like, okay, man, I have Anthony, you know, just running th some ideas through your head, you know, what we'll potentially be talking about and all that stuff. Uh, and I, uh, and I just came uh, to that moment where, where, where we met you. And when I mean, we like, you know, back then I was working and you were running for um, the nomination race in a Hansik. Yeah. For those listening or watching, Ahuntsic is a is a, is a district. It's a riding in the northern part of Montreal, um, and you had taken that on really early on. Yeah, and I remember you came to us and you're like, you know, guys, I can use some help and stuff. And it's you know what sucks is that <clears throat> we were at a position where we can't really start backing uh, anyone that wants to run a nomination, right? I mean, if you get the nomination, then there wouldn't be a fucking problem, you know. I mean, we've helped so many other people. And I remember having that discussion there with the people at the office and we're like, he seems like a good kid. I hadn't met you before. And I'm like, yeah, he seems like a good kid. I mean, it's nice, you know, we, they, 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 and we have nothing to do with it. We were at provincial level. You were running federally. And, you know, so we, we could have very easily said we don't give a, <laughs> we don't give a shit, you know, but we're like, you know what? It's nice. You know, young people, this is, you know, what the party needs, a little fresh look. 
and we had this whole debate. We're like, we can't, you know, like political, like how, how, how do you help uh, uh, someone that's seeking the nomination, right? Politically, like it, it was, it, it wasn't the right thing to do. And, uh, but I'll be honest with you, man, deep down, I was confident that, okay, don't worry about it, man. You're going to get it because you had told us that you had done so much work on the ground. How many memberships had you, had you signed? Uh, George, man, I, it was over a thousand. It was over a thousand at the time, you know, memberships weren't, uh, weren't free. Yeah. You know, you, you had to, you, you had to get people to actually, you know, pay for them. You know, they were for a year, you know, you know, you know, the drill, you know how it was. Uh, now, now people can sign up and be a supporter of the party and then, you know, be able to vote and all that. But, you know, to ask people to not only believe in, in you, sometimes they believe in you more than they believe in the party. Yeah. You know, sometimes they believe in, you know, uh, the party and they're supporting an individual and, and then also then put money to, to all that and, and say, yes, I'm committing to donating to this organization. So it was over, over a thousand. Uh, the campaign started shortly after I came back from, um, uh, from uh, Haiti when I was a UN peacekeeper there, you know, I noticed, I'm like, you know what, I, I, I see the world a certain way. Um, I believe in, in the party, the liberal party and the way their vision of the world was. And, uh, and I said, okay, this is my way to continue serving. You know, I was uh, serving as a member of the Canadian Armed Forces, but I'm like, I want to serve my, my community. And, and you know what, though, George, you guys took the right decision. I would have done the same thing if I was in your position. It was very difficult because, look, we, we had, because we were there for a long time, right? And we had been approached by other people. We're like, who the fuck are these people? There is, you know, and it's normal for them to come and see us because they want support. They want, uh, you know, access to resources, volunteers and all that stuff, uh, uh, donors and everything, you know? But you were, I think, probably the only one where we're like, oh, God, what the hell? Like, it was, it was like the whole week. Like, okay, what are we doing in a Hansik? You know, and how can we help the kid? What, what are we going to do? We can't. Uh, can we do it but stay behind the curtain kind of thing, you know? And it's, it, it wasn't the right thing. And, um, yeah, it, it was a tough decision to make, but we had to make it anyway, you know? But what frustrated me in this whole situation, first of all, the fact that Justin Trudeau ran open nominations across the board, I personally disagree with whole, that, that whole philosophy, okay? Uh, I think a leader of a party should know what kind of people he wants and he should go out and recruit them, right? Uh, if you want to run open nominations, you know, here and there, that's fine, but you can't do that across the board because you have no clue what you're going to end up with, you know? And that's not to disrespect the people that are that are there, but you know, and we're not going to name names, but there's a bunch of people that I can tell you that probably shouldn't be there. You know what I mean? And it's just, they got in because they did the legwork. They got the memberships. They, they mobilized the people. They brought them out to the convention and they got in, they passed. And, you know, you got to respect that it's democracy. But at the end of the day, I, I've always questioned, you know, is this the form of leadership that I would like? You know what I mean? And my answer is no, you know? Uh, and, but, but again, I understand it because Justin Trudeau, took the party at its lowest, right? I mean, it, it had failed miserably uh, gaining two former leaders, uh, you know? The party was, you know, was coming out of the, the, the sponsorship scandals, all these things that were just going the wrong way for the party. And he had to kind of revamp it. And obviously you need money and nomination campaigns bring a lot of cash. I mean, I get that, right? And it, it increases your membership as well. I get the whole strategy behind it, but I don't know, man. I wonder if, in retrospect, those top advisors that he had at the time are still uh, okay with having done that. I'm, I'm, I don't know. 
I don't know. And, and, and what sucks in your case is that there were games being played behind the scenes, man. And, we, you know, everybody knows them. So at that point, just fucking select your candidate. Don't play games anymore. I mean, you were working how long? Two years before the actual nomination. Yep. Two years. And they were postponing, postponing. They weren't calling it. They weren't calling it because they had other plans. And they, again, this, is not, this has nothing to do with Melanie Jolie. I think she's a wonderful person and she's a great uh, MP. But at the same time, I, I think I even remember telling you, fuck, tell them no. Tell them to go fuck themselves. Force, force the nomin- force the convention. You were just too nice. <laughs> the, yeah, the... Saw so many things there, George. The uh, that it was such a learning experience, honestly, though, George. Like I, uh, that I, I feel, I feel almost like I was an actual candidate in, in many cases, not just a nomination candidate. And you know, during that, I met so many people. People still call me today, you know, from 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 that organ from that time. Um, you know, one thing you mentioned uh, the not open nominations. Justin himself, right, ran, you remember, uh, George, he ran, uh, his nomination was open, you know, and it, I think it, ca- it came a lot from that where he was like, you know, if I myself, you know, uh, as a, a new person that came into politics, I had to go and make those contacts because uh, get to know the people in my community, what wasn't uh, important to them, forcing that conversation uh, for someone, son of, you know, Pierre to, to go through that process. Uh, he, you know, it was important that, uh, that many others go through that process as well. I do agree that I think maybe uh, in hindsight, and then I think something, perhaps it's something now that you should hold on to a couple of perhaps, you know, writings that you might think are, you know, uh, of, of, of importance to you and to the communities and to the party and, and perhaps um, ensure that. There's a, but Anthony, this is the frustrating thing. The frustrating thing is that, that they did that. Some, some writings that were, you know, let's call them safe writings. They knew who they wanted to be there. They were just, you know, uh, uh, you know, they, they, they were just, it was a facade, man. They were just saying, okay, it's an open nomination. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, they're preparing their own people, right? They had their teams mobilizing. They had their, uh, you know, all resources for these people. And we know, we're not going to, we're not going to say the actual examples and the people, but we know these things were happening, right? And because we're talking about a Hansik, I mean, Melanie Jolie, that's exactly what happened. She didn't just fall from the sky and say, oh, I think I'm going to run in a Hansik. They went, they handpicked her. She was the candidate uh, for the mayor of Montreal. She did fantastically well. Uh, like she, she nearly won um, the seat against uh, Denis Coderre. Uh, very charismatic person, very intelligent girl. Um, and that's fine. I think she deserves a seat in the party. But tell her, listen, we have a writing for you. Come and run for us. Don't fucking run an open nomination and then screw you over because all the work you did, uh, I don't want to say it went, um, it, it, it was lost. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, like you say, you, you took away something from that. But um, you could have easily taken her if there was an actual nomination. Is because there was no work done on her side on the ground. Zero. There was nothing. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, Georgia, on that, in the end, in the end, you know, it was the people, the liberal, the card holding members of the liberal, you know, party within a Hunts at Cartierville that decided who, you know, who was ended up being their nomination, you know, their person on the con. I, you know, I had worked, I worked the ground uh, intensively. Um, um, like we mentioned early on, you know, the family came in around that time, uh, George, you know, like my son was born uh, premature you know, uh, a few weeks. And, and so, you know, that played in, you know, b- going at it for a long time, seeing what, where my priorities should be, you know, should be p- placed. Um, 
that's when I decided to to withdraw my my candidacy there, you know. And after all those after all those years, I still to this day say I've never lost a campaign. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So you can only say that so many times uh, when you withdraw. But uh, but at the same time, uh, th- there was work being done on the ground, you know, and 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 that writing deserved the notoriety that it has. Like you need to have someone that can ha- that has the ear of the prime minister. You, ha- you need to have someone that can speak volumes. That writing is well deserving uh, of of someone of of a ministerial level. And so I wanted to make sure that. Uh, that uh, my other priorities in my life was also well balanced with that. So, um, no, that, that, I understand your point. I, I see your point. But look, in exchange, I mean, they 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 gave you the the, the management of Justin Trudeau's campaign in his own writing, uh, which uh, which is a big fucking deal. Also, I mean, everyone is there, right? Because it's the PM's writing. Uh, not that it has any difficulty of, you know, not that there's any risk of him losing or anything, but of course you never want to take anything for granted either. Uh, and it's just one fucking chaotic thing, right? Uh, George, uh, but, you know, we, we were talking back and forth, you know, about how, you know, how it is to be out of politics, you know, and, and then also like, how do you feel about that? I, I would say, you know, from my, from the time I withdrew from the campaign, um, to when I, you know, it was two weeks about, it was two weeks after when I withdrew from the campaign, focusing on the family. And like I told you, you know, for all those reasons I said, I was looking at it and I was like, I can't believe I'm out. Like I'm out of the game now, you know, like I was, I was living and breathing this every day, uh, uh, you know, dinner table conversations, events, just multiple events. Uh, when my son was, uh, when, when my, uh, my partner went into labor, George, uh, I literally was at an event with her I, I was physically at another event while she was still at that event. I was coming back to it and her water broke, you oh. know? And so, so just, just picture the amount, the number of events you're going to. And then, and then, you know, all that happens and now you're out, uh, you're taking time two weeks after I was approached to join the campaign, uh, to, to take on the campaign, you know? Uh, and I had to go back to my partner and I say, listen, like, I got to go back in, you know, I got to, I got to go back in. It's popular. It's they pull you in. They pull you in. They can't let you go. But I'm born and raised in Papineau, George. You know, you know, like uh, in that in that writing, you know, more of the Villery Saint Michel side of things. So, so at that time, you know, my family still lives there. You know, I found it was my way to contribute to to once again. It's giving back to community, right? It's giving back to. How, how did you feel? Because obviously, running your own kind of nomination, you can make your little strategy. You're, it's pretty much, you know, uh, you're getting your your you're trying to find your own supporters to kind of push you to the nomination, to the nomination, but running an actual campaign is obviously much different, right? Uh, had you ever organized any other campaign before that? No, no, no. That was my first, that was my first campaign. I was involved in all, I was involved in multiple campaigns, you know, municipal, provincial and federal in the past, but not at uh, at a campaign manager level. So, and not at the, George, you know how it is, you know, like we're talking about, you know, dozens of volunteers and then it increases as you get closer to the end to like hundreds, you know, E-Day had like, I think 300 volunteers, Yeah, yeah. you know, and cycling through, you know, like from the drivers to the people on the phones and the multiple shifting, you know, because it's Papino, right? And of course, I didn't do it alone. There were others that came in at that time, well experienced, uh, you know, people that you know that uh, that work on the, on these campaigns, and I've done it a, a thousand times. And 
and so they, I was heavily supported and the group on the ground that then ran the nomination after, of course, the writing office and all those that have been, you know, for multiple years, both from the provincial level and the federal level and, you know, all, all, all had that experience. And uh, you yourself have kind of came in on times, you know, to give your advice and bestow your wisdom, yeah. you know, and so it was, it was definitely surreal. Um, it was not easy, George. It was not easy on the, you know, I just said I, I left politics for the family and the family was still, you know, a premature son, you know, uh, trying to live through that and, you know, and, and work out those details. It was, it was difficult on the home front as well. Um, and knowing, and, you knowing that my son would come and see me sometimes like, Hey, come and see daddy. And the way we see daddy is we're going to the campaign office. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you, can, you can't really focus either. You're like, you, you're, your mind is all over the place. It, it, it's tough. See, what people don't realize, uh, and, and, you know, people are very quick to judge. And we're talking about all parties, you know, across all parties here. It's not only about the liberals. Like, I mean, everyone that's involved in politics, regardless of the party, gets criticized. Every single person. You know what I mean? You get judged. You get hated. Like, there's this, you know, there's this parallel universe that we live in where you either um create that shell where all these things are going to bounce off or you're going to be in trouble you know what i mean you're gonna be in trouble you know i mean people have, uh, that i know went into politics and within months uh they just couldn't do it others that have managed to go through that like within one two three years they, they you know they do they, they're going to burnout uh they can't they can't handle it uh, it's a lot of freaking pressure. The fact that you're never home, um, that you're running everywhere, that you have so many you know, million things on your mind. We're talking about this off air before, uh, when we, when, before we started recording where, you know, I'm out now, obviously, but it's so difficult because, you know, you're so used to that crazy pace that when you come out, you think that it's not normal when in reality it is normal. <laughs> you just didn't know it all for all these for all these years, right? And what sucks is that and I don't know. If, I don't know if you uh, did that. I mean, um, you start thinking back at everything that you missed. You know, the birthdays, the holidays, the whatever, the family gatherings, uh, a friend's birthday, friend's anniversary, whatever. You know what I mean? And you're like, fucking shit. What the hell? Where where was I? You know what I mean? Where was I? Like you give so much importance to this job. And it sucks that other people don't see that. They don't see the value that you're putting into your work, regardless of the party, regardless of what you believe in, you know? Uh, and it's, you're just an easy target for, for all these people. And especially now with social media, it's just next level. I mean, when we started, social media didn't have that much of, a, of an active presence in, in politics. I mean, we had Twitter, and then slowly, slowly, you know, Facebook came in, and then all these, you know, all these things started happening. But I would tell you the first maybe two years, 2007, 2009, it wasn't that, you know, that present. Now, pff, you know, you're, you're elected. You wake up in the morning and you have all these like hundreds of tweet notifications about you and people bashing you and, and all these things, right? Hmm. Uh, George, I would say one of, the, um, one of the first, I guess, uh, casualties of a post, uh, you know, nomination or even just campaign uh, for me was my social media. Like I... I had such a following and was posting so regularly, you know, and then, but I knew that was part of the, part of the, the politics of it, you know, and, and, and getting that message out. And then post that, you know, I, I, 
I stopped. I completely stopped. I rarely, I, I view a lot of things on social media, but I don't really like do my, or I'll do a retweet, you know, or repost, but not really, you know, my own content. And, and it's a shame because, you know, I, I live a lot of events that I think I would love to share with others, but you know, I, I, I've now turned inwards and said, this is private and I'll share it with, with those that are closest to me. Right. Of course, my social media is also very wide open and has a lot of followers and, and stuff like that. And so, uh, but uh, on your other comments about, uh, like George, I go, I look back at pictures of my, my sons, you know, in, in their early, early months and I'm not there yeah. for a lot of those pictures, you know, my, um, you know, my partner took a lot of those pictures and selfies and whatnot. And, so those memories and and sometimes you're like you know wow okay i i don't remember him at that age yeah. you know that that three to six months perhaps or whatnot you know and as much and so and because after the campaign uh, uh george uh you know which was a long one right it was not a traditional 33 or whatever 50 plus days yeah it was like 79 days it's like when i said yes to the to being the campaign manager two weeks after i you know i i i withdrew um, I didn't know it was going to be a 79 day campaign. <laughs> yeah. So, like, oh, like 30 days. It'll go by quickly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I thought it would have been in two months, you know, or like it'll be later. Right. I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. No problem. And then the red drops, you know, two days after. And I'm like, oh man. Uh, so they pulled me back in and I'm now going full fledged. Right. But after that, I moved to Ottawa. I moved to Ottawa. Uh, after the campaign, uh, I was asked to to go to Ottawa and and and, join, and form uh, part of the new government and work with the Minister of National Defense. So, while my family, while my you know my partner at the time, uh, my partner was was pregnant already with our second child. You know, uh, it was best that she would stay back in Montreal while I was going back and forth uh, Ottawa Montreal for the first uh, for the first almost a year. You know? Yeah. And so, of course, now you're missing the weeknights, you know, uh, you're not home to tuck them to bed or you're not there to wake up in the middle of the night, to, you know, to, to help the kids. So it, yeah. it, it plays a significant role on family life. And uh, you really have to be passionate about it, George. Right. See, this is the question that I ask a lot of people like you and myself, you know, let's say today you were asked, would you would you redo it? You know, knowing what you know now, you know. Maybe you have certain regrets. Maybe you're like, oh, man, was it even worth it? You know what I mean? I missed all this phase of my kids' uh, early years. When you're asked, would you do it again? What's the answer? Oh, man. Because for me, it's yes. And that's what's sickening. For me, it's like, yeah, I, I probably, yeah, I would. You know what I mean? And it's sick because you just yeah. realized everything that we're just talking about. But there, it's like this drug inside you, man. It's like, uh, yeah, I think I would do it. I don't know. I don't know about you, but I would. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I would. I would, George. I would. Yeah. I, I wouldn't be the person I am today if, if I didn't do it, yeah. you know. And, and uh, I would hope that what I learned from that experience, I can pass on to, to, to my kids and, and, and to others. Um, but I think it also takes uh, a circle of people that, that understands that world and being, you know, you got to have your, your circle of friends got to understand what that means that, you know, you're missing their birthdays because X, Y, and Z, you know, I always, my friends were either involved in, in those activities or the friend or, or my friends are aware of that. Even family, my family was like in the trenches, like they're, they're deep in the trench as all families are, you know, when for, for individuals that, that are, are that love this and support this, I wouldn't change it, George. Um, 
maybe minor things I would do differently, you know, uh, if I'm able to give that wisdom. But the going through that process, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have changed it. And what you said is important, right? It's the people around you that make the biggest difference. Because, you know, even, even in my case, in 2018, when I ran, my youngest was born maybe two months before the campaign. She was a, yeah. she was a newborn. You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, but the, the, the fact that you have people around and saying, listen, yeah, do it. You know, we're, we're there. Don't worry about it. Everything's going to be fine. You know, do what you got to do. Uh, I think it plays a big role because imagine wanting to do all this and then you have the, the negativity coming out of your own house. It's, uh, it, it's not, uh, it, you know, it's not the right, it's not what you, you would want, right? And the, the fact of the matter is that a lot of people that are working in politics actually live in that kind of scenario where it's difficult you know because the, the families do take a hit yeah. families do take a hit like i mean you, we have to accept that uh and uh, i mean how many how many people in politics do i know that are either divorced or who you know god knows what complications uh, are, are happening in that relationship and I, I don't really look into that because it's not my business but it's something that you that you encounter very often in politics i mean every, everyone that you meet has some story you know what I mean? Of either a breakup or a divorce or some difficulty, uh, you know, some adversity in that in that setting, and uh, it's 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 you know it's always floating, it's always there in the back of your head. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, George, I, I think uh, to make an analogy with the, like military is, you know, sometimes they say you know when when a soldier goes to war, their whole family goes to war with them, right? Yeah. Like you have that worry, you know, uh, of how they're doing the preparation when they come back, you know, be it from physical or mental injuries uh, uh, or just the consequences of the realities of, of them going abroad uh, and what they missed out. I would say politics is similar. If you go, if you're in high level political involvement, uh, you know, at whatever that level is, but you're like, you're really giving it and, and you're fully involved, your family joins you, your part, your relationships join you along the ride. So um, it's important that they're okay with it uh, or else you can't perform at yeah. the level that you expected to in politics, which right. is not a work-life balance already to begin with, unless that support is already there, right? So, yeah. so, so, so after the campaign, you go and you work for the defense minister. Uh, first experience in cabinet? Yeah, first, first experience in cabinet. So, uh, you know, and a lot of us around the table also were first timers, you know, uh, gov you know, the Fed, the liberal federal. Uh, well, the minister the himself was the first time too. <laughs> well, and our, my minister, uh, who is still the minister of national defense right now, uh, was first time MP, you know, so first time, uh, first time uh, a minister as well. So a lot of firsts there in our, in our team. Uh, how long did you stay in Ottawa in the cabinet? In, in three years, I did my, I did three years, um, like three years in a few months, you know, um, and in the beginning when I first got in, I'm like, wow, I'm like, this is incredible, man. I'm going to be here for like, we're going to be in power for 10, 12 years. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to run it the whole, the whole way through, you know, um, and, and then I heard people like people say, no, man, after two years, like you tap out, you got to You got to get out. You got to do something different. You know, you got to. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm writing this. This is a, this is this is all the way, you know, yeah. and uh, I quickly realized after a year or so why people say like two years is like is the time where you should start considering to do something different. Um, it's, it's very taxing, very, very taxing, George. Uh, uh, you know, the hours, the work-life balance. I also had my family back and forth, you know, Montreal, Ottawa, that dynamic is also wasn't helpful. The fact that of having a family, George, 
just like you know you know political staffers and how they normally are and for the vast majority of your time there as well you know like it's you're in a relationship um but to be performing at this level with a family it wasn't really it's changing now but it, it, it it's not meant for the work-life balance individuals you know looking for the the nine to five or the, you know, the I've always said it. If you go into politics and you think you're going to go in at nine, leave at five, either you didn't read the fine print <laughs> or, you know, I don't know who the hell hired you, you know, like there's no such thing. There's no such thing. There exactly. Is. So it was, it was a great experience. It's just, it, you know, it was unique. It was unique to now work in a, in a different setting, responsible. And so I'm a, I'm a member of the Canadian Armed Forces, still am, still a, a reservist. And, and so for me, uh, defense was where I wanted to be. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's not like, you know, and for a lot of people like working in politics, they're like, they don't care the file, you know, and, and, and the cabinet that they're working in or, or the minister, you know, uh, or what they necessarily are doing. Uh, for me, I knew it was defense, that minister, that's what I wanted to do. This is where I saw my impact. As I told you, I came back from Haiti as a UN peacekeeper. I ran for politics. I saw a vision of the world uh, that I wanted to help support. And I, and, I, and I did that in that position. So for me, it was a natural fit. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the military, man, because uh, how, how long were you in the military? How does, how does that whole thing happen? I've known people that are in the military. Um, I never understood. In fact, I, I, I'm amazed by the... the, the you know, the, the mental capacity to even say, that's what I'll, I'm doing. Cause I can't, I would never be able to do that. You know, uh, mm-hmm. how does that happen? How did, how does this whole thing start with you? Yeah. So, so in, in Canada and a lot of countries, you can, you can be a part of like what we call the reserve force, um, you know, where you're, you're not full time. You can be if you want. And there are some par- contracts that, but you're not contracted to go to war as if you would be enlisted in the regular forces and you sign you know, multi-year, 20-year, 25-year contract with the, with the crown. Uh, this is uh, an opportunity for you to still serve, uh, you know, your, your country and, and, and be qualified. But yet your availability is up to you. You know, you decide if, if you go away to Haiti on a peacekeeping mission or you'll decide if you want to go to Afghanistan or, uh, or not or other missions. And so um, it, it started in 2008 for me. Um, I was get I was almost 28 years old, so it's it's 12 years now that I'm in the forces and I, I'm still active. Um, and it started from my roots, actually. To be honest, it started in my roots as a. Some people will laugh at this, but uh, as a Boy Scout uh, in Papineau, you know, in uh, in a local church, you know, our Boy Scout movement, and and really from what it derived from there was the the duty beyond yourself. Yeah, the duty to serve your country specifically from that that I learned, you know, and I, and I and I it always carried with me and. I always wanted to go. And then at the age of 27, 28, I had I'd multiple times thought about doing it. And I said, well, if I don't do it now, forget it. Like it's, it's, it's not going, it's not, I, people can enroll at a later age, but it's getting more and more difficult. And so I did at 27, 28, I joined the infantry. Um, and so, you know, frontline guy, you know, the guy who's a p- platoon commander wanting to, to look at, at war from that angle. Um, and, and my service to the country uh, in doing that. And so uh, I was one of, the old, uh, one of the older people to do all those courses with a bunch of 21, 22-year-olds really fit. So I had to be as fit as possible to, to pass those courses. And, 
and 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 that's what I did. I I took on many different roles um, until the point I I joined the minister's office and I, I took more of a back seat from my from my actual military service while I was there because uh, I was there as a civilian. Uh, and now I came back. You know, I'm back. You know, um, helping out in Ottawa in a regiment over there and and working with them. And it's it's a great honor to be to continue to serve, especially after putting in through, working with the minister's office and everyone to put in so many great policies to help our women and men in, in uniform, to still be there to, to see them through in my little capacity that I can in this, in this way, uh, keeps me connected still to the work that I did previously. But you weren't just a reservist that because you know we meet a lot of these cadets and all these things, they're just, they're just here, right? They're doing their training and everything, but you actually were sent out to missions. Yeah, in in 2013, um, I I joined um, a, con- a Canadian contingent. So we were 34 Canadian Armed Forces members that went over to Haiti as part of the UN peacekeeping mission um, there called Minusta. And we were 34 Canadians amongst uh, 1,200 Brazilians. So we were integrated fully within Brazilians, uh, Brazilian battalion, which meant we had to learn how to speak Portuguese and <laughs> Unfortunately, I had to spend some time in Rio during Carnival on the beaches of Copacabana learning, learning Portuguese. Yeah, that's horrible. It's a horrible it was, experience. Yeah. It, was a, it was a very difficult experience. Uh, <laughs> but one that helped us uh, learn the Brazilian culture very well and especially the language as well. Uh, but yeah, it was a phenomenal experience, uh, especially Haiti. Growing up in St. Michel and Villery after the 2010 earthquake, you know, it hit home. I am George. I'm sure you 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 know this from your 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 previous work. But for me, like you know, my banker was of Haitian uh, descent. My you know my uh, my coiffeur, my neighbors, everyone you know. And Michel Argent was uh, governor general at the time. So for me, the, the opportunity when it arose to to do something something positive uh, within my capacity as a Canadian Armed Forces member uh, to be to go and help uh, the people of Haiti in my own little way. Uh, it, I, I took that opportunity. So uh, it was, uh, I'll never forget. I got the mug also. I had the mug to prove it too, George. <laughs> is, there, is there still a Canadian contingent down there? Uh, the mission has evolved since. Um, so from 2013, that, that the military component of it has, has closed. There's now a police, a policing side of it that's still there. Uh, so our, you know, our SPVM, uh, you know, and our SQ uh, and RCMP as well, especially the Francophones, um, are, are always there building capacity. So from a military side, no, but uh, there, there's still some policing uh, uh, operations still going on. How was the situation where you left? I mean, uh, following that earthquake, I mean, uh, were they able to kind of rebuild or everything is still pretty much in ruin over there? Well, the in 2013, so now we're, you know, by the time I got there, it was like about um, a little more than three years after the earthquake. Uh, most parts of the country, most, well, I'm, I can't say the country because I was mostly in Port-au-Prince. Um, you know, a lot of the rubble and a lot of that stuff had, had been accumulated, uh, uh, collected and removed. Um, but not everything, of course, was rebuilt at that moment, you know. I think one thing that was shocking for me, George, because I came back during that trip at one time to Montreal for a week. I had a week vacation and, and I went back and and I'm like, wow, like the difference between the different countries and what, what a country like 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 Haiti goes through, you know, the hurricanes, the weather patterns, the difference. Yes, we have winter, we have snow, we have the infrastructure to deal with it. Well, Over yeah. there, 
compare. You can't compare. You can't compare. You, you, you can't. You know, they're just the, the level of stories of buildings, you know, and 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 the, and the richness. That it, Haiti was a rich country. It was a rich, you know, colony. The first to be you know, to abolish slavery and and gain its independence and and at the height, you know, of what Haiti was, and then and what the punitive damages of sanctions and of like ex-colonial powers did to that country to what it is today and uh, is unfortunate but the la fierté haitienne uh, is strong george you know it's uh, it's the people are really the resource there now at this moment because if it's going to get it's going to be them that's going to uh, evolve the country uh, both politically and economically um, tell me a little bit about what you do now because you joined the romeo dallaire initiative uh, the dallaire initiative um, you've been working there for a couple of years uh, just for everyone listening or watching, just let's just explain who Romeo Dallaire was to begin yeah. with. Yeah. No, General Romeo Dallaire is uh, one of our Canadian uh, icons and, and, and one uh, that a lot of people, uh, depending on your generation, will know about, either have lived through the experience that he, that he, that he had uh, witnessed and the Canadians witnessed through reporters, you know, in, in the 1994 uh, genocide against the Tutsis in Rwanda. Uh, where, you know, he was the force commander, the head of the military component of the U, uh, United Nations mission in, in, in Rwanda at the time, uh, called, uh, named Unamir One. And so at, at that time, you know, he was, he was the lone Canadian with, with a few Canadian staff officers supporting him um, to keep the peace, you know, within, within Rwanda, within, from a UN perspective. And then he was, uh, you know, of course, went through that, uh, that genocide uh, with when over 800,000, over 800,000 people were killed uh, during, during that situation, you know, numbers can be even higher, uh, you know, and, and we can't talk about then just the mentally and, and physically injured uh, because of it. He himself suffering from that experience himself and has been public about it and, you know, and uh, about his uh, struggles with moral injury and, and the post-traumatic stress disorder that came about from that experience, how that affected him, his family as well. And then uh, from there, he, he became a senator, Canadian senator, you know, as well when he was, this, when he was released from the Canadian Armed Forces. Um, and he did a lot of work on advocating for issues of mental health uh, and moral injury amongst uh, Canadian Armed Forces members, but also writ large, um, as well as the Child Soldiers Initiative. And so what happened was that in 2004, he, did, he, he had a, 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 a stint at Harvard where he started exploring the use of children in violence, specifically what he witnessed in Rwanda, where he himself had encountered children that were being used by the rebel groups, you know, um, as frontline soldiers or as people, spies or messengers, but that they were integrated within these rebel groups and that he himself encountered many and that he himself had to react to, uh, to this. And he realized that, you know, as a Canadian Armed Forces member, he was never trained on how to deal with that. And a lot of his, his injuries, uh, psychological injuries that came from that experience had to do also with the inability to protect the most vulnerable and sometimes having to take and make decisions about children, you know, from a war perspective, a conflict perspective, uh, that he wasn't prepared to take those decisions uh, prior. And so from that, he, he did further research and studies and realized that this is not just a one-time issue, the children being recruited around the world consistently to this day. 
they still are. Uh, people are still destroying generations uh, of their own country people, you know, citizens, by employing children in violence um, uh, for multiple reasons. And so he made it his mission uh, in life to, uh, to progressively end the recruitment of use of children uh, around the world. And, and uh, so that to protect the military and police members that encounter them in, uh, in, in, in the battlefields uh, in order to prevent you know, their, any, any issues they might have, uh, but also to try and prevent these, these children from being recruited to begin with and used. And so multiple areas, multiple ways. And so we created an initiative, a couple of people in the beginning, <clears throat> snowballed into a few more staff members <clears throat> in 2010. And I say this this year because in 2010 um, is when we became part of the Dalhousie University based on the Halifax. We were integrated there. We became officially the Child Soldiers Initiative. And now we celebrate our 10th anniversary, George. We just celebrated last, you know, a few weeks ago. Um, our 10th anniversary of being at Dalhousie and where we've become now an institute. Um, as a recognized institute within the university, globally connected with partnerships around the world. And we're now known as the Dallaire Institute for Children, Peace and Security. And so, so uh, yeah, that's, that's amazing. So you, you obviously have a wider purpose. I mean, uh, to, to make sure that these situations aren't experienced in, in, uh, in the future. But at the same time, like you said, there's a huge component of, training uh, uh, either police forces or armed forces uh, on how to deal with this situation. Exactly. It was, um, <clears throat> it was, uh, and I think that's from my Canadian armed forces side of things. I saw that connection. I saw the reason, the importance, you know, I, in the beginning, I, you know, when I was first introduced to this subject uh, in, in the office of the minister of national defense, you know, it was, I would see this. I'm like, so what if a child has a gun? I'm a military member. If he wants to kill me, I'll, I'll kill him first, you know? And this was the mentality I, I saw. We just see, you know, you just look at it from, as a soldier perspective, you're an enemy. It doesn't matter if you're a child or not. Yeah. When you start probing it, when you start training security sector, so military and police, you start realizing, you know, these children are being used on purpose to, to strike a blow in you personally psychologically you know because a child let's be honest george like and for and the definition of a child internationally is up to the age of 18 years old mm-hmm. and so we're you know we're looking at teenagers and stuff but you know a child will never replace a professional soldier there's no way like you know they don't bring the same capabilities so why do people still use them well they use them because when when you see a child it affects you it affects you morally. It affects you psychologically. You don't react right away as you would for someone else. So by you not reacting, you're putting yourself in danger because someone else can then ambush you and whatnot, and then you're putting the rest of your colleagues. In. Uh, and then if you do overreact, then people are going to be upset that you killed a child. And so you have the whole community after against you because, you know, because you've, you've, you've killed one of theirs, and, 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 then, and that just spurs these endless conflicts of war so the training was so important George we and it's 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 when I started when I did my first training I went to Rwanda in 2018 I was asked by the uh, by by uh, the organization to go there I was working in the minister's office at the time so I went there as a volunteer Um, and um, when I saw it when I saw we were training the Rwandan Defense Forces at the time so look understanding the history of the general and the organization and training 
one of the best peacekeepers in the world we have the, to this day. You know, uh, they're on the defense forces and seeing what, how, because they face this every day in their missions. They see them. They're, they're in places where, unfortunately, children are still being recruited. Right. But when I trained them uh, and supported and facilitated uh, to do that, I was, um, uh, that's when I knew. That's when the bug bit me. Yeah. Uh, I knew that my passion that I used to have in politics, I'm like, this is now my passion. I was able to transfer over that passion, George. How have things evolved since 2010? I mean, uh, obviously, if you, if you guys are there, it means that there's still a problem. But um, are, you, are have you been able to quantify the, the progress at all? Yeah, so uh, great question, George. Uh, you know, we had uh, the impacts of our work is what we were working. Uh, we've been doing uh, uh, this past this past year, quantifying that. You know, uh, what how how we've changed the the dialogue. So a lot of times it's changing the behaviors and the attitudes from the armed forces side of things as well. Seeing a progress and in, in ensuring that fewer and fewer, you know, military forces, state military forces are are employing children. You know, uh, so we're, you know, like making sure that side of the things. Then we're looking at the armed groups, you know, those rebel groups. How how do we communicate with them? How do we move the yardstick on that side? Uh, progress, you know, unfortunately, the number of children that are in conflict zones, you know, susceptible to being recruited has increased. So as you try and tackle some areas, uh, the pie gets bigger, unfortunately. You know, you're exposing more and more children to being that to possibly being recruited uh, and used. And so, but there are there are some quantifiable impacts that that are important to to to, to illustrate. And 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 I think one of the biggest impacts that we've had, at least from a from a global perspective, is um, that what we call the Vancouver Principles. And that was in 2017, uh, Canada. Um, co-drafted with the Dallaire Institute, you know, where I'm currently working at, but at the time where I was working with the Office of the Minister of National Defense, co-drafted and launched the Vancouver Principles on Prevention and, and peacekeep, uh, on Peacekeeping for the Prevention of Recruitment and Use of Children as, uh, as Child Soldiers. And so that's where we moved the global agenda and the global discussion to a whole other level. Right now we're almost, we're at 99, George. 99 countries have endorsed the Vancouver Principles uh, these are these are countries that are taking that into uh, uh, taking saying that this is not right that we're going to do something about this so we're signing on to this because we believe in that and I think that's one a great example of how the global community has started uh, galvanizing themselves around this around this thing. Yeah, but at the same time, the bigger question mark is you know even if it were 200 countries that had signed the Vancouver Principles, at the end of the day, uh, it's difficult to imagine any countries armed forces recruiting youngsters to, uh, in their armed forces you uh, and maybe i'm wrong I, I i would imagine it's much more uh something that you see with rebel groups and those there's, there's it's it's rare that you can even contact them i mean they don't have any recognition uh internationally like uh, how do you attack that problem because these guys they're on their own it's like they're on their own pro agenda they're rebels I mean, they, they, you know, they're, they're formed from the ground and uh, they, 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 they conduct their own kind of uh, mission and agenda. Like, how, how, do you, how do you even get your head around that? I know it's, it, and of course, every country and every location, it's different. Every rebel group is different. There's some great organizations doing that work, you know, with rebel groups on the ground specifically, you know, targeting uh, them specifically. Um, you know, they'll, the different 
organizations will use different tactics. You know, I think one that is of importance uh, is that, uh, you know, you might be a rebel group, you know, might not belong to a, a state, but there are international standards or international human rights laws. And, 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 and the recruitment and use of children uh, is, is one of them that you can be trialed, you know, in, in, the, in the, IC, the ICC for, in Chinese criminal court in the Hague, uh, on and have been successfully even recently. We've just seen uh, an example uh, just recently of rebel groups, you know, the DRC that that were uh, were charged, you know, were finally uh, charged with um, and found guilty of, you know, uh, of that recruitment of, of multiple violations, grave violations and, and, and mass atrocities where that was, what, that, were, that was one of them. So letting them know that advocacy, informing, sensitization that, hey, uh, you shouldn't be doing this. Uh, because not only because it's not right, not only because you're messing up these children and the community and, the gen and your, your country, but you yourself uh, can be accused and will be charged. And, and, and there have been others, you know, and so listing the examples and a lot of them know as well of those cases. So, you know, sensitizing them to what the rules are, um, the international norms, um, and and how they can be found guilty of uh, of this um, is part of the question. Second part, George, there are unfortunately still state forces that uh, that recruit children. Right. And um, yeah, so in 2019 there are seven. Uh, unfortunately, we're looking at over 50 for our, for rebel groups, but uh, there's still seven uh, state forces that uh, that still recruit children. Which ones? Looking at Myanmar, we're looking at uh, Somalia. We're, you know, it's not just consistent within one continent. You know, there, it's, um, it's unfortunately, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a global issue, and, uh, and, and, and in, in some cases, you know, it's not. Uh, they'll say, well, they're not frontline. You know, they're not fighting in the fronts. They're perhaps just the cooks in the back, or you know, they're, 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 they're messengers. They're uh, tea people. You know. Uh, but the reality is uh, that it's all of those roles that children play puts them at risk themselves, you know, puts their communities at risk, and then also create this. We don't break that cycle of violence uh, that we need to do in order to end conflict. Because obviously, theoretically, it all sounds good and everything. But how much do you really think like groups like ISIS or Boko Haram, like, how much do you think that these guys even care? You know, what I mean, they, you know. Is there even any any contact with these groups? Like, the, like it's unimaginable that there is. So that, you know they, they don't care. They're on their own. Yeah, I, I think it, yeah, it's a multi pronged approach. And in, in, for ISIS, uh, we didn't have a direct contacts, but we knew that they had uh, you know that they've been recruiting and they do it purposely, right? The indoctrination that yeah. is so so important and needed uh, in order to fuel their hate and 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 the sustainability of their organization, right? And there are organizations even on. You know the Lord's Resistance Army. You know where you had children born into. You know, literally abducting women and having them part of the force, and then just breeding the next the next army. Uh, you know, is 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 atrocious. Now, um, it's multi pronged. You know, you got to you got to take you got to tackle it from not only from from the community side of things. You know, and and trying to help it. And where we focus our work most importantly is on the prevention side, George. You know, once they're recruited. 
you know, it's, uh, there's a whole series of work that can be done to try and extract them, you know, try, you know, uh, and trying to rehabilitate them and reintegrate them into society. That is a work that a lot of organizations do. We focus a lot on the prevention side and, and, and not only on the prevention side, we specifically focus prevention and how we, how military and police interact and what their role can be in, in helping in that prevention side. It's it's a it's a huge problem, George. It's a huge. So if we can prevent the children from being recruited to begin with, working heavily on that side, you know, um, ISIS, you know, will have less access. Boko Haram will have less access, you know, to to those because the communities will be stronger, and 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 they'll and the and hopefully the institutions are present to make that happen as well. So how does this approach work, like institutionally? Obviously, you work with the armed forces, you work with police forces. Is there any part of this uh, approach uh, <clears throat> that deals with education, like within yeah. the, the, the education institutions? Yes, yes. Uh, we, we had different education programs, even high school programs and lessons plans, you know, for, for a specific day in general as well. Uh, the, February 12th is the International Day for... Uh, the recognition of the, the elimination of the recruitment and use of children as a, or as child soldiers. Um, we also known as Red Hand Day. And so it's a day that we, we try and educate um, and sensitize the general public, you know, on, uh, on this issue and that it's still an issue. And George, uh, I'll, I'll tie it to another thing why it's important to me uh, and to us, George, I would say, you know, uh, we're pretty much of the same age, George, or relatively in the same, you know, the same uh, generation there. Uh, I, I would say, I wouldn't want you to say you're 40 like me, but I think you're, I'm you know, a, you're, almost, you're, <laughs> you're almost there. Oh, exactly. Yeah. But George, I don't, if you remember the, you know, St. Michel and, and Villery during the 90s, you know, uh, you know, the, the street gangs and, yeah. you know, and, and that situation that was happening there and, um, and how, you know, friends of mine were being recruited for criminal gangs, you know, uh, either on the rock machines or the hell's angels, you know, and, and, and all that stuff going on. And so it hit home for me because I, I saw the, I saw that this is not necessarily just a situation that happens somewhere else in the world, you know, right. a part of the world that's problematic and it happens at home as well. And so, the, um, you know, it happens through criminal gangs and involvement in, in street gangs and 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 many parts of of Montreal and Toronto and 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 our big cities uh, and and centers. So, an educational program is definitely important. You know, having that uh, within our um, within our schools, within you know, it's not of course it's not a nationalized broad, uh, program, but there are teachers that are interested in the subject matter. We have also what's called peace clubs. So in, in some of the countries that we're working in, we've put together those clubs at school where we build that educational curriculum to know what, you know, basically support the uh, support peace uh, and what that means and that dialogue and that conversation from an early age. And so giving that agency to the child, to the youth, to speak to it, to be a leader in their community about peace and to want and require peace and what peace means for them. Right. I think it was missing for us. For me, George, I, you know, I'm looking at all this recruitment that was happening when I was a child, uh, when I was, you know, just an adolescent, and and no one was talking to me about, you know, that that's, in that, I guess you would say that is, people would say that is wrong, but there was no educational program to put me in the mindset to understand or my friends, you know, about that. I was never subjected to that, unfortunately. I mean, fortunately for me, and there were multiple factors for that. But my friends, uh, some of my friends, you know were and and some never got out so yeah no exactly 
so 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 what's um, what's in the what's in the works now? What are you guys planning? What are you what are the projections going forward? So hopefully another great ten years. You know, looking forward, uh, we've had some really incredible expansion um, ever since. You know, we started. It was one person in 2010 that you know doubled to two, and 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 over the years we're now uh, you know 30 plus. You know, um, at headquarters, and then also you know internationally, we're in. We have offices in 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 uh, on the African continent in Rwanda and South Sudan, and and expanding in other countries now, even expanding into Latin America. And so um, I always say it's unfortunate that we, uh, our work uh, is expanding because that means there's still an issue to address, you know? Um, But nevertheless, uh, as long as there's still an issue, we are seen as a global champion of this uh, of this work and 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 one that people turn to um, for advice for um, for support uh, for leadership on the matter and so we we continue to do that work we continue to expand and support the government of Canada's work also on the stuff like the Vancouver principles and and things of that nature and 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 yeah so we're looking at 2021 being a a different year, you know, it's COVID year, uh, seeing what the manifestations of that is, but um, expanding our work into other countries and, and continuing to fight the good fight. Fantastic. Dude, uh, I've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, one, it was great seeing you again. Uh, and I appreciate the time that you made. Uh, I don't know when <laughs> this whole craziness is going to subside, but uh, eventually we should grab a coffee, man. Uh, see you up close. I, I fully agree, George, and uh, maybe uh, we should uh, pick a place in our old uh, battlegrounds absolutely. and uh, <laughs> and and go visit uh, maybe that uh, Cafe Mocha or something, you know. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right, buddy. I appreciate it. Take care. See you, bro. It was great seeing you. Thank you very much. Great work. Great work.